Thank you so much to Marina and Pepita. Um, you wouldn't have known by the way they led, but uh, Chaz was actually supposed to be leading today, and then he called me on Thursday um, telling me that he had COVID. And just a huge thanks to, to Marina for stepping in, and I felt extremely blessed um, by that time of worship just now. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks to Pepita as well for holding, holding, down, <laughs> holding down the floor while we found someone to, to cover. Well, um, my name is Frank, if you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here. Yeah, go ahead and grab a seat. <laughs> I always forget to say that. Um, yeah, I'm Frank, I'm one of the elders here, um, and I'm going to be taking us through our time in the scriptures today. And if you're visiting the Hallows for t- uh, today, or you're like fairly new to us, um, firstly, we're really glad that you're here with us. Um, over the past few months, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together as a church. And we find ourselves midway through Luke chapter 16 today, which according to scholars is one of the most difficult sections in the whole book to understand. But if we remember, Luke begins this gospel by stating that his goal is to write an orderly account of the ministry of Jesus. So with this in mind, when we come to the more confusing sections of Luke's gospel, We can trust that if we seek him, the Holy Spirit will bring clarity to the words in front of us. And I'm I'm, I'm in faith today that as we do that together, that as we focus our minds on today's text, that the Spirit will bring clarity. So our text for today, despite only being three verses long, contains enough material for three standalone sermons at the very least. And in view of this, I'm going to devote devote the bulk of our time together in God's words on verse 18, as I believe this verse needs to be unpacked very carefully. So without further ado, let's read our text for today, Luke 16, verses 16 to 18. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then... The good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to drop out. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Father God, I just want to come before you this morning and I just want to ask, Lord, for your help in unpacking these words. Lord, I pray for your help, pray for your wisdom, pray for your guidance. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would come, ultimately come to you wanting to, to come under your authority, to come under your your truth, because we know that all of your words are for our good and because you deeply love us. So, yeah, be with us this morning as we unpack this passage in your name. Amen. So before we, before we try and make sense of Jesus' words here, we've got to understand the context and who he's speaking to. If you were here last week, Austin did a great job of unpacking the first part of chapter 16, which is the parable that Jesus told to his disciples specifically. And when he's done with this parable, 
In verse 13, we read that there were also some Pharisees who had overheard Jesus' parable. Verse 14 tells us that their response was to scoff at Jesus. This can be translated, they ridiculed him, as in the ESV, or sneered at him, as in the NIV. Throughout Luke's Gospel, we see that the Pharisees thought Jesus was a complete joke. They rejected his teaching, they rejected his authority, and they even rejected the validity of the miracles he performed among them. So our passage for today is Jesus' response to the sneering Pharisees. First, in verse 16, Jesus says that the law and the prophets, the holy scriptures, which the Pharisees knew inside out and who had built their entire life around, had ended a few years ago during the public ministry of John the Baptist. Now, it's hard for us to imagine just how offensive this would be to the Pharisees. But then Jesus goes a step further, and he says that now they are living in a new age where the kingdom of God is being preached. And through Jesus, everyone is urgently invited. This radical new message of the kingdom of God declared that the doors of heaven have been flung wide open, and both Jews and Gentiles were invited to come in. This teaching meant that the Pharisees, therefore, were no longer the privileged ones on the inside. And they had to decide, just like everybody else, whether they would believe in Jesus or not. Jesus continues to shock the Pharisees in verse 17, where Jesus assumes a posture of authority over the law, saying that not even the smallest pen stroke will fall from it. Now this is another ginormous statement from Jesus, because the only one who has the authority to pass judgment on the divinely uttered words of God in the Law and Prophets is God himself, the one who spoke it all in the first place. And the Pharisees are left in a tough spot because they agreed agreed with Jesus. The law and the prophets were the inspired and authoritative word of Yahweh. And yet they couldn't believe that Jesus had the audacity to proclaim that they had ceased and yet still held their enduring inerrancy and value. Having established his view on the law, he then goes on to challenge the Pharisees with authority in a key area where they were guilty of not upholding the law, but finding loopholes or adding to the law for their own gain. And that area is divorce. Let's read verse 18 again. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, before we continue, I want to acknowledge that divorce is among the most sensitive and painful subjects of all. 
Because for most of us in this room, we will have been impacted by divorce in some way. For that reason, the subject of divorce should be approached with humility, gentleness, and grace, applying God's word carefully into each unique situation. With that said, let's jump back into Luke 16, 18 and ponder Jesus' words together. The first thing to say about verse 18 is that it was aimed at the Pharisees. In first century Judaism, there were two schools of thought, the Hillel school and the Shammai school. Hillel and Shammai disagreed around the subject of divorce. Shammai held that sexual immorality was the only grounds for divorce, whereas Hillel allowed divorce for a variety of reasons, including something as trivial as a wife burning her husband's dinner. That's actually literally true as well. That's, that's not even an exaggeration. It was into that culture that Jesus speaks. And his words would have been highly controversial in a culture that had so many differing views on divorce. Notice in both Jesus' examples, it's the husband who Jesus singles out. This was because in the first century, wives were treated as simply another possession that the man owned, along with his livestock, his house, and his land. So Jesus is putting his finger on a sensitive area for his first century male listeners. According to Jesus, it was no longer acceptable to divorce your wife on petty grounds, putting her in a very vulnerable situation as divorce involved being cast out of the home. Before we dive deeper into, into the Bible's position on divorce, I want us to pause and acknowledge that in this context, Jesus' teaching was radically pro-women. In a first century divorce, it was always the woman who lost. Jesus raises the bar in his authoritative statement in verse 18, not only to uphold the sanctity of the God-ordained institution of marriage, but also to protect the vulnerable women in his culture from the dangers and shame of being cast out of the home for petty reasons such as poor cooking. This fits with the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. He's always defending vulnerable women. He's quick to rebuke men who abuse them. He dignifies women of questionable character. And he let women who were constantly shunned get close enough to him to do such things as anoint his head and wash his feet with tears. Jesus even chose, upon his resurrection, to reveal himself first to women, which is a questionable move if you're trying to build a strong case for such an implausible miracle as a resurrection. Because women's testimonies in those days weren't recognized in a court of law. Verse 18 is no exception to this rule. Jesus takes a strong stance on divorce, if obeyed, which would have meant a security and a value bestowed on wives that was unheard of in that day and age. Let's return to the verse and dig a little deeper into Jesus' teaching 
on divorce. Having just spoken about the law and the prophets ceasing with John the Baptist, one question his listeners may have had is, what will this new teaching of the kingdom of God be? Will this new teaching be stricter or more lenient than that of the law and the prophets? The answer is clear. Jesus' authoritative teaching doesn't dilute that which came before. No. The kingdom of God ethics are even higher than that of the law and prophets. Because according to Jesus, obedience doesn't involve doing the bare minimum required or finding convenient loopholes in order to put a check in the box. But a radical outpouring of devotion to the God who has so richly blessed us in Christ. Taken on its own, Luke 16, 18 teaches that divorce is always wrong in the eyes of God, and that every new marriage causes both parties to commit adultery, because one or both parties are still bound by their previous marriage covenant, which has not been broken in God's eyes. But whenever we're dealing with a single verse like Luke 16, 18, it's so important to take a step back and consider what the Bible says as a whole about the issue in question. There's three other passages in the Synoptic Gospels that help build out our understanding of Luke 16, 18. Mark 10, 11 to 12, Matthew 5, 31 to 32, and Matthew 19, 3 to 10. We're not going to look at the Mark verse because it's almost identical to the words we read here in Luke. So let's look at Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Let me read it. Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here in Matthew, Jesus provides one exception to the rule that all divorces are wrong in God's sight. According to Jesus, if one person in the marriage has committed sexual immorality against the other, there are grounds for a divorce that is permitted by God. Now the difficulty here is that there's a lot of debate on what Jesus means when he uses the Greek word that we translate into sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, which is the word, the, sorry, where the word pornography comes from. And it's a broad term that is not simply linked to intercourse. This is why Bible translators use the term sexual immorality as this covers many different types of sexual sin that can occur within a marriage that could be seen to have clearly violated the marriage covenant to the point where divorce would be permitted. Let's turn to Matthew 19, verses 3 to 10. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man managed to give his wife a certificate of divorce and then sent her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Now this is the longest section dealing with divorce in the Gospels. And it further fleshes out Jesus' teaching on the subject. In verse 3 we learn that the Pharisees were only asking their questions to test Jesus, or in some translations, trap him. They weren't really concerned with learning what Jesus had to say. They were simply out to trip him up so that they they could condemn him as a fraud and a false teacher. Jesus resists resists the temptation to start with semantics and instead he goes right back to the creation narrative to lay a foundation on which he can build out his response. Before Jesus will address the nature of divorce, he first addresses the nature of marriage, explaining that before sin entered the world, God ordained in his infinite wisdom that a man and a woman were created by God to perfectly complement one another, and that when they come together in marriage, they become one flesh. They're no longer two separate entities, says Jesus, but deeply entwined to the point where you can no longer tell where one person ends and the other begins. Jesus says this bond is so strong and so permanent that he adds his own words to the words of Genesis stating, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I'm married to a woman called Debs. She's not here today. She's on her way to New York for work. Um, And when Debs and I were married, in the same Anglican church that her parents had been married in many years before, and my dad, who is a Church of England vicar, married us, the wedding, Anglican wedding service, which is based on the Book of Common Prayer from 1662, has a beautiful liturgy which begins with an introduction focusing on the nature of marriage. It says this, Marriage is a gift of God in creation through which husband and wife may know the grace of God. It is given that as man and woman grow together in love and trust, they shall be united with one another in heart, body, and mind, as Christ is united with his bride, the church. The gift of marriage brings husband and wife together in in the delight and tenderness of sexual union and joyful commitment to the end of their lives. It is given as the foundation of family life in which children are nurtured and in which each member of the family, in good times and bad, may find strength companionship and comfort, and grow to maturity in love. 
Marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty, which all should uphold and honour. It enriches society and strengthens community. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. The service also includes the marriage vows, a solemn promise made both by the man and the woman. Here is the promise that I made before Debs. I, Frank, take you, Debs, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death as we part, according to God's holy law, in the presence of God, I make this vow. Marriage is a solemn covenant that is only broken upon death. The marriage covenant is supposed to be a picture of the covenant that God makes with us. According to the Bible Project, a covenant is a relationship between two parties who make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants define obligations and commitments, but they are different from contracts because they are relational and personal. God makes several covenants with his people throughout scripture. For example, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, among others. All of the Old Testament covenants build like a long crescendo up to the climax of the New Testament covenant between Christ and the church. Human marriage is supposed to point to the covenant between Christ and the church, both as a beautiful expression of love and sacrifice and also a signpost for believers and unbelievers alike as we read in Ephesians 5. If human marriage is intended to be a reflection of God's covenantal character, no wonder then that marriage is so precious in God's eyes. Now that we've established the nature and sanctity of marriage, we can dig further into the New Testament position on divorce. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16. It says this. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, he must not, she, sorry, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. 
And this is the key bit right here, verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. So the mainline orthodox historical position on divorce found in the Westminster Confession of Faith holds that here in Paul's teaching, we have a second ground for a legitimate divorce, that of desertion by an unbeliever. Paul, admittedly writing on his own authority into the specific context of the Corinthian church, says that if you are married to an unbelieving person who physically leaves the marriage, then the believing spouse left behind should be allowed a divorce. And as Paul is seeming to suggest, remarry in good conscience. So let's summarize what we've learned so far. The New Testament's position on divorce goes something like this. Honor your marriage. It is a lifelong commitment and a sacred union that you entered into together before Almighty God. Divorce causes deep pain to God, to those breaking the marriage, and to their families and friends. Divorce tears apart the marriage covenant, which is supposed to be a lifelong commitment. Divorce is permissible, but not required, in the case of sexual immorality and desertion by an unbelieving spouse. If a person divorces for legitimate reasons, they are free to remarry to another person who either hasn't been married or has also been through a legitimate divorce. If a person divorces for reasons not laid out in the New Testament, then they should remain single as to remarry is to commit adultery. Now, some obvious questions well up at this point. Most notably, what about cases of abuse? And this is obviously a fair question in this context. And let me attempt to, to answer that as best I can. But before I do so, before we dive into specific examples that are more nuanced, it's important that we should let the overarching principles of Jesus' teaching impact our minds and hearts before we go any further. Like with anything Jesus says, his words carry the authority of God, but also come from the pastor's heart of the chief shepherd. Remember, Jesus' teaching on divorce was as radical back in his day than it is now. Divorce was rife in the first century, and in the vast majority of divorces, women were the ones who lost. Jesus' teaching is filled with love for us. Jesus knows how precious marriage is and how much pain and suffering results from divorce. So he takes a radical stance on this issue out of love for all his people. How do we make sense then of cases of abuse? 
Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly state that abuse gives the abused spouse the right to a legitimate divorce. But like with so many areas where the Bible gives us principles without all the details, it's up to us to use our God-given wisdom and invite the Holy Spirit into the process of discernment as he is the one who leads us into all truth. Put simply, the church should take any kind of abuse extremely seriously as it so clearly breaks the golden rule. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, body and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. If there is abuse in marriage, the first step might involve calling the police as according to the scriptures, such as Romans 13, 1, they have been appointed by God to protect the vulnerable and to restrain evil. Too often, the church has tried to resolve issues of abuse in-house without involving police, which has led to the victim of abuse, suffering much longer than is necessary and given the abuser license to continue. Another appropriate step might be to seek a separation for a time between the husband and the wife. Firstly, for the, for the safety of the abused, but also to allow time for God to work in the heart of the abuser and bring about genuine repentance. The goal should be to bring restoration and healing to the marriage, whilst at the same time taking precautions to guard against the same kind of behaviour occurring again. If the abuser is unrepentant and attempts to continue the pattern of abuse and oppression, then many scholars and pastors see this as grounds for divorce under the broad term desertion. Jim Neuheiser, Jr., comments that a persistent pattern of oppression can be a form of abandonment leading to grounds for divorce. Even though Paul specifically references unbelievers in this passage, many scholars would consider ongoing abuse in the same category, even if the abuser says they are a Christian. There can be scenarios where someone is persistently abusing their spouse in an unrepentant and hard-hearted manner to the point where the church pronounces that they see no evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the abuser, as laid out in Ephesians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The church, although we cannot see the heart as only God can, sees enough evidence to treat this person as an unbeliever, according to the steps outlined in Matthew 18. I am personally of the view that abuse can be understood as abandonment, even if the abuser is very present physically. It could be argued that persistently abusing one's spouse blatantly violates the covenant of marriage, and in that sense is a form of abandonment. To consistently abuse 
One spouse breaks the covenant made on one's wedding day. Promises such as, with my body I honour you. And the promise to love, comfort, honour and protect one another. Abuse then, though not explicitly mentioned as grounds for divorce in the New Testament, can be seen as coming under the umbrella of abandonment and is therefore a legitimate reason for divorce. So let me summarise this before we try and apply this. Number one, marriage is a covenant bond which is only broken upon death. Marriage is a human picture of God's unswerving devotion to his people. Divorce, therefore, is always a tragedy, as by nature it involves breaking a covenant. Number four, every divorce that isn't the result of sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever is illegitimate in God's sight. Five, persistent and repentant abuse can be seen as abandonment and can therefore be grounds for a legitimate divorce. Number six, every remarriage after an illegitimate divorce is considered adultery by Jesus. So how do we apply this? First, this is one of the most sensitive pastoral subjects that we face in our lives. If every marriage is unique, then every potential or actual divorce is also unique. Meaning that in every single case, we must handle that case on an individual basis with the utmost care, gentleness, humility, and with a deep reliance on the Holy Spirit to bring the light of life into each situation. In cases of abuse, we must make use of the institutions God has ordained to restrain evil and protect the vulnerable. We should seek the wisdom of one another and the church elders in navigating marriage and divorce. Second, if you are married, I hope this message has given you a fresh reminder of the sacredness and sanctity of your marriage. If you would say that your marriage is in a good place right now, then that is cause for celebration as you feel God's delight over you in your marriage. But even when the times are good, we must never get complacent and think that just because things are going well now, that we won't go through rougher patches in the months and years ahead. Marriage is like a garden. We must constantly tend to it for it to produce the beauty and fruit that we desire. If we neglect our marriages, then like any garden, it will quickly be overrun with thorns and weeds. If you would say that you're currently in a rough patch in your marriage, firstly, be real with yourself and your spouse about it. Speaking honestly about how you're feeling is the first step to God bringing healing into your marriage. 
Ephesians 5.13 says, Everything exposed by the light is made visible. We must start by bringing our feelings into the open. Bringing others into the situation and asking for their help is also a fantastic step to take. Perhaps you could benefit from marriage counselling, which shouldn't be seen as a last resort before divorce, but as a valuable tool to bring a marriage back into good health. My wife Debs and I greatly benefited from marriage counselling around two and a half years ago, and we're still living in the good of it now. If you are in an abusive marriage, please reach out to the police, then get some trusted friends and or family to bring you into safety as you separate from your abusing spouse in the short term. Seek the support of the church to help you, and we will gladly rally around to you and support you as best we can. If you are here and you are considering divorce, Please heed Jesus' words. Divorce should not be taken lightly. It should not be seen as a convenient backdoor to escape out of a marriage. Or even the natural course of a relationship if you feel you've both grown apart. Divorce should be seen as an absolute last resort and only sought out in the parameters that the Bible outlines. The reason why we make promises to one another on our wedding day is because marriage is long and marriage is hard. No marriage is easy. Nobody goes through marriage without periods of pain and trial. And it is in these moments that the covenant promises we have made come into full effect for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Our vows are like an anchor in a storm. They hold us as the wind and the waves howl and as the lightning and thunder burst overhead. They hold us until the skies brighten and the sun begins to shine, and the waters mellow. Our covenant promises prevent us from bailing early, from jumping overboards just before the clouds part. The periods of sunny sailing only get better as our marriages get older. We can enjoy the good times so much more knowing that we weathered the storms and didn't break our promises. Thirdly, if you're single here today, then I want to draw your attention to Matthew 19.10. This is, this is an incredible response here from the disciples. As Jesus is done with his teaching on divorce, his disciples say, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Marriage is a weighty undertaking, and it is arguably the biggest decision that you can make in your life. It is vitally important then that we, like the disciples, have a sober-minded view of marriage so that we do not idolize it or rush into it lightly. 
Paul states in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 and 9, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. I think it's fair to say that the church, you know, the, the, you know, the big C church, has had a tendency to elevate the gift of marriage over the gift of singleness. But Paul and Jesus seem to agree that singleness is the greater blessing. How many divorces, I wonder, would have been avoided if Christians didn't feel so much pressure to get married? And who instead leaned into serving God, their church, and their city with the God-given gift of singleness. If you're single today, either because you haven't married or because you are divorced or widowed, even though this should go without saying, you are just as precious and valuable to our church as married people are. We want to provide you with family, fellowship, and friendship so that you can really bless God and his world with your singleness without being crushed by loneliness. Maybe you'll be married in two years' time. Maybe God will provide that for you. But in the meantime, don't wish away your singleness because everything changes when you get married. Trust me on that. Marriage is glorious, but it's not singleness. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness helps a person to be single-minded in their devotion to God. Singleness is a beautiful thing. It isn't for everyone, but for those who do remain single, God promises a rich reward. If you're here today, and you've gone through a divorce that wasn't biblically permissible, and you've now remarried, can I gently encourage you to go to God with this? And if you haven't already, confess your sin to him and repent, seeking his forgiveness. As we saw in Luke chapter 15 two weeks ago, God's heart for sinners is to run to them and embrace them. The gospel of Jesus covers our sin. Illegitimate divorce is no exception. Moreover, the wisdom of 1 Corinthians 7 would counsel you to stay in your second marriage, as it makes no sense to try and remedy adultery with another divorce. Stay married, says Paul, as God has called us to live in peace. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, we want to submit ourselves to your loving authority in our lives. Lord, we, we want to be those that want to, we want to obey you with every single last area of our lives, Lord. We don't want to have anything that we've held back for ourselves that we're not willing to bring under your lordship. And we really get, Lord, that this is a huge area. This is a massive area. This is a very painful area, Lord. This is such a complex area. 
And so we just, we just want to come before you, Lord, and just, we want, we want to ask for your wisdom, Lord. We want to ask for your, your tender and gentle guidance in these issues, God. I want to pray for everyone who's married here. I want to pray, Lord God, that you would, that you would really just reaffirm um, the sanctity and the, the sacredness of, of every marriage uh, in our church, Lord. I pray that we would be, we would, you know, the married among us would be those that, that are investing heavily in, in, into our marriage. And again, like bringing you into the situation, asking you for, for help and guidance and wisdom. We know that marriage is tough and living with another person is, is really tough. And yeah, we just ask, Lord, for, for you to fill us with your gentleness, fill us with your humility, and help us to serve one another, Lord. Thank you that that is the cornerstone of marriage. We, the one serves the other, and then the other one serves back the other way, and it's a glorious, it's a glorious thing. So help us to really, really commit ourselves to serving the other, and really knowing, knowing the other as well, Lord. So pray for anyone in this room that doesn't feel known by their spouse. And just thank you, firstly, that, that you know us, Lord, intimately, and you know every hair on our heads. So I pray, Lord, that you would help there to be good communication, Lord, in marriage. And that we really know one another so we can then love and serve one another. Um, just pray for everyone here that's single. Uh, just really pray that um, they would find, um, first and foremost, their ultimate um, relationship in you. That, that you are um, yeah, you are their father and, and in Christ you're also their, their spouse as well. I just pray that they would really know that so deeply, Lord. And that it wouldn't just be a head thing, but it would be it would be known in their hearts as well. And I pray, Lord, for, for them to um, feel uh, fellowship, family, community uh, here at the Hallows, Lord, that we would really rally around us that are single in our, in our midst, Lord, and um, that they wouldn't be loneliness and isolation. And I just pray, Lord, for anyone in this room that's either in the midst of or is, has just gone through or is um, potentially kind of thinking about, about divorce, God. Um, far be it from me to, to, try, to try and exert my own, yeah, my own authority. Um, far be it from, from me, Lord. I pray that we'd look to you and your authority. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would both help uh, everyone who would fit into that category to, to navigate it so carefully and so wisely. And I pray that where the church is needed, um, that we would really... Um, step up to the plate in, in that way as well and, yeah, and bring support, uh, comfort and, and wisdom and, and safety. Yeah, I pray all this in your name, Lord God. Amen.